Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we're joined by a guest. I'm Lily Knapp, regional reporter at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Western North Carolina. We've seen boom and bust cycles for generations in Appalachia. Coal, timber, textiles. But today, we're talking about another industry, local journalism. The news business has been changing as long as we've been in it. But the last few years have been especially notable. Newspapers like the Roanoke Times in Virginia have had to slim down. It's leaner than it was five or ten years ago. Uh, We are having to do more with less. Our reporting staff has been cut by quite a bit. But journalism isn't dying. Newspapers, television, and radio stations are adapting while journalists are reinventing what they do. Hey, we really do want to change the way that we are operating because we understand that we have not been serving the whole of our community. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, currently helping more than 1,000 Appalachian families and businesses control their energy costs by producing their own solar power. More at solarholler.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. It's been more than three years since the global COVID-19 lockdown. The pandemic changed everything for people around the world. And it exacerbated problems in an industry that's been struggling with systemic issues for decades. Not coal, the news business. Arrests of journalists spiked in 2020, according to the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker. Hundreds of reporters and editors have been laid off. Some have started new publications. We got curious how all these disruptions are affecting media in Appalachia. So we wanted to talk with someone who has experience as a local journalist in the region. Lily Knapp is the regional reporter for Blue Ridge Public Radio. We featured her work here on Inside Appalachia and interviewed her about those stories. As a reporter covering multiple counties in western North Carolina, she has a unique perspective on regional media. Lily, it's good to have you on the show. Hey Mason, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about what you do at Blue Ridge Public Radio. Sure. Uh, I do a little bit of everything. So I'm the regional reporter for Blue Ridge Public Radio. That means I cover everything west of Asheville. That's about seven counties and, you know, stories about topics ranging from the national forest, politics, people, just whatever comes up, basically. So how'd you get into journalism? I got into journalism in high school sort of by accident, signing up to work for the school newspaper. I had always been a big reader, and when I did journalism for the high school newspaper, I realized that real people are a lot more interesting. And so I ended up going to college for that at UNC Chapel Hill and studying political science and religion, you know, those topics that you're you're not supposed to talk about with people. That's what I've always kind of been drawn to. And um, so I've just kept doing that. I went to graduate school for journalism and thought I wanted to do international journalism. So that's what my master's is in. And through the course of that process, kind of realized that I wanted to report on the community that I'm from and, and, you know, move back to Western North Carolina. And um, that's what I've been doing. What's it like 
growing up and coming back and reporting on the area where you grew up? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to describe. I feel like it's awesome to be able to kind of see how the region has changed in real time. Like, I remember what this region was like, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. And so whenever I'm talking about, you know, Western North Carolina and how this is different from it was 10 years ago, some of that is from my experiences here. And when I'm reporting and interviewing folks in the community, some of them I've known for a long time since I was a kid. And it's um, it's just a really big honor to be able to interview people and, and kind of ask the questions that I always wanted to ask growing up. One of the first stories I did was about Franklin, which is my hometown, being the gem capital of the world. And I got to go around and ask everybody, you know, is it really the gem capital of the world? And, you know, technically it is. That's awesome. We're talking on this show about sort of changes to journalism over the last few years. And our listeners will have heard some of your stories here on Inside Appalachia. What's one piece of reporting you've done that's really stuck with you over the last couple of years? You started the show kind of talking about the pandemic and, you know, that's really shaped a lot of my reporting over the last couple of years. And those were really hard times for a lot of people. And so, you know, it it really was an honor for me to speak with people during some of those really dark days and kind of confusing times and trying to find answers for folks to big questions. I, I remember, you know, just trying to help people figure out how to call the health department because they were getting so many questions that the phones broke. And, you know, one of the stories that really sticks with me is from the Gadua Academy over on the Kuala Boundary. So it's a Cherokee immersion school. And so they were trying to continue teaching students Cherokee without being in the classroom with them. And so I talked with the teachers about how that process continued to work during that time. But also one of the teachers, um, Irene Smoker Jackson, her mother was fluent Cherokee speaker who only spoke Cherokee. And she was one of the, the last people who to only speak Cherokee in Snowbird, which is over in Graham County. And she actually passed away from COVID. And so, you know, for her to share that story with me and, and what that meant to her and what that process was like, um, that's something that's really always stuck with me. Let's hear that story. The new Gadua Academy started in 2004 to teach a new generation of fluent Cherokee speakers. Like other schools, the pandemic caused educators to go to virtual instruction. I did not anticipate that we would still be remote this far into the school year. That's Crystal Carpenter. She's principal of the elementary school department at the new Gadua Academy. Students have been learning virtually since March. She says it's been challenging. I think that the elementary teacher in me says that there has to be something that we take out of this and learn from it. Many parents at the school have stepped up, says Carpenter. I think that there are parents that I am very proud of that have taken that extra step to reach out to us and ask for those translations and ask, how do I say this and how do I help them with this? And I think that parents working on their own language have been a happy result from that. The school is innovating to teach the Cherokee language, as it's harder to learn without in-person facial expressions. It started a virtual lunch hour so that students could casually chat in Cherokee. 
with students not being here in school physically, they were missing the informal component of the language and just the social interactions with their peers and the staff. There are fewer than 200 fluent speakers left in the eastern band of Cherokee Indians. My Cherokee name is Ayani Goldstein. That's Irene Smoker-Jackson. She's a fluent speaker and the elementary Cherokee language specialist at Kadua. She's worked at the school for 13 years, translating lessons into Cherokee. Internet's hard to come by where I lived. Before, when you was in a classroom, they could see your facial expression. They could see your mouth movement, how you say words. Since the pandemic, Smoker Jackson has mainly been sending audio messages back and forth with teachers to translate words. You're always translating, you know, translating all the time. It's just like translating 24 hours a day. If just like one word could translate, it could take you a couple hours, you know. You can't just throw it out there just like an English word. Smoker Jackson grew up in a home where her parents spoke only Cherokee. She's always called her mother for help with translation. But in October, her mother passed away due to COVID-19 at the age of 91. She left a lot of memory with me and a lot of a lot of words with me that's in my heart that I could still carry on. Her mother was one of the last people in the Snowbird community who only spoke Cherokee. She contracted COVID after being sent home from hospice. They realized that my mother had it really bad. Her lungs was already filling up with the mucus and fluid was building up. So she lasted two days there. For Smoker Jackson... COVID-19 has only strengthened her resolve and passion to preserve the Cherokee language. The language is dying out because it, it's taken out our elders, our speakers. That is why it is important that we continue with the schooling and we continue embedding it in the kids that we have now. The New Gadoo Academy hopes to start some in-person classes again on January 11th after waiting to see whether there's another surge of COVID-19 cases after Christmas, like what was seen after Thanksgiving. I'm Lily Knapp, BPR News. That story dates back to late 2020. We're talking today about some of what's happened with news outlets over that time since. So, Lily, can you give us a sense of the media landscape in Western North Carolina and some of what's been happening there lately? Yeah, I've, you know, I was just talking about how during COVID, we were really just trying to get information out there. And I feel like that's such an important piece of what we do as journalists. Here in Western North Carolina, you know, a lot of people think of Appalachia as a news desert, but here in this region, we actually have quite a lot of newspapers. In each county, there's at least one local paper that keeps tabs on the local government and is kind of the paper of record. And then there are digital startups and other nonprofits. So there's a lot of coverage, but there are definitely still gaps. I would say there's also a need for more stories from Western North Carolina to reach the rest of the state and the region. And, you know, just like everything else, it's really continued to change over the last couple of years. One of the biggest things here in North Carolina and across the country, just like every other industry, there's been a lot of transition and there have been some moves towards unionization, WFAE, the Charlotte Public Radio Station. One of our sister stations became the first public radio station in the state to form a union in 2022. 
And then WHQR in Wilmington has recently followed suit. That's something we're seeing where I'm at in Virginia, too. The journalist in Charlottesville organized into the Blue Ridge News Guild. Hampton Roads formed the Tidewater Media Guild. Western Virginia was a little behind that, but it's happening here, too. When Lee Enterprises bought the Roanoke Times in 2020, the newsroom responded by forming a union. It's called the Timesland Guild. So last year, I spoke with two journalists who were part of that effort. The first is Alicia Petska, who was its president. We were upset. We were stressed. We were constantly being asked to do more with less. So unionizing became something we pursued in order to have a greater voice at this paper that we all love and we want to see succeed. So so what's happened with the newsroom since, since the Guild formed in 2020? We've gone through two rounds of really tough contract negotiations. Uh, the Guild has won raises in each year of those contracts, including equity raises, which are helping us take the first steps to correct uh, imbalances in our salaries that have been allowed to fester for far too long and raises that are pushing our starting pay up to more competitive levels. We've secured better severance agreements and a commitment to promote more diversity in hiring so our newsroom better reflects the communities that we serve. So what does the Roanoke Times news gathering operation look like in 2022? It's leaner than it was five or ten years ago. Uh, We are having to do more with less. Our reporting staff has been cut by quite a bit. We haven't had a full-time K through 12 education reporter for more than a year. But another big difference is that because we unionized, we have more power, we have more of a voice, we have more of a right to approach the company and engage them in a conversation about these important issues to draw the public's attention to uh, things that are happening that are gonna hurt their their news coverage, because we're unionized now, we have protections that entitle us to speak out about these issues. And I'm really proud of the work that everyone in the newsroom has been doing in increasingly difficult circumstances. I think we continue to do an excellent job of delivering important news, uh, covering things at a depth, and I think is still unmatched in this region. Uh, you know, no one gets into journalism for, for the money or the acclaim. Uh, Everyone is here because this is truly a vacation for us, and it's something that we're passionate about. That was Alicia Petska, president of the Timesland Guild. Since we spoke, Petska's left the Roanoke Times. She now works in the communications department at Roanoke College, but she's continuing to do some work for the Timesland Guild as well. I also spoke with Henry Jandreau. He's one of the Guild's organizers, but was laid off by the Roanoke Times after three years of reporting in different beats. He then went on to found the online news startup, The Roanoke Rambler. In April of 2021, uh, The Roanoke Times laid off nine people, uh, myself included. And so even before that time, I had been thinking about sort of the need for more and different kinds of local news in Roanoke. I saw there was sort of a gap in coverage, the environment, the climate, and issues of sort of racial justice and Roanoke's unique history is being highly segregated. And so I started the Roanoke Rambler. What do you think has most defined your first year? You know, we've focused a lot on local politics. So I think, you know, we um, are there at every Roanoke City Council meeting. You know, we've been covering the upcoming K-12 
council elections for a long time, as well as following the saga of former Roanoke Councilman Robert Jeffrey Jr., who in March was convicted of various financial crimes. Another story that we published um, in our first year that is, I think, um, particularly important was forcing Roanoke County after um, they charged us, you know, more than a thousand dollars for this public records request to release a video of um, a police shooting that happened in 2016 of Keontae Spencer, a teenager who was holding a broken BB gun walking down the street. It was only because of a recent state law, which has since been repealed, that um, we were able to get that. That was Henry Jandro, who founded the online startup The Roanoke Rambler. We're seeing more digital news startups and nonprofit newsrooms forming to fill a gap in coverage. Lily, what kind of media startups are you seeing in Western North Carolina? Yeah, we've seen a number of startups in Western North Carolina, like the Asheville Watchdog, NC Health News, as well as some statewide media startups that have been expanding, like the Assembly and Lasse Latino and others. Social media has also been a really important platform for outlets. You know, most communities have different Facebook groups that keep them up to date on local car accidents and other, you know, kind of really hyper-local stories. And there just seems to be a pretty broad representation of different ideologies and perspectives digitally. One of the startups there I read is the Asheville Blade. I've followed it since founder David Forbes split from the alt-weekly The Mountain Express several years ago. The Asheville Blade is a leftist local news co-op that takes an adversarial stance toward covering local government and police. It's actually been at the center of a lot of conversations lately about journalist rights. Lily, I'm sure you're aware of the story, right? Yeah, I've been following it in the local newspaper for the last couple of years. Yeah, the Blade's been in local news and national news, too. That's after calls by the ACLU to release police footage of the two Asheville Blade journalists who were being arrested. The arrest happened on Christmas Day in 2021, as police cleared a group of unhoused people and protesters out of a city park. Police say the park closed at 10 p.m. I spoke with Asheville Blade founder David Forbes, who said this was not the first time a Blade reporter has been arrested. In the summer 2020 protests, one of our reporters, Veronica Coit, was uh, dragged out of their car and arrested by the police. That charge was later dismissed. Here's how Forbes describes the subsequent Christmas Day arrests of Blade reporters Veronica Coit and Matilda Bliss. Uh, the APD was cracking down on a uh, camp of unhoused people on Christmas, which is already like ridiculous levels of open of openly evil behavior. And in the process, two of our journalists were there observing it and were both arrested. They were just arrested. They were targeted and arrested first. Lily, I know you haven't covered this story because it's not your beat. But can you give us some context about what was going on at the time? Yeah, at this time, I remember reporting on homelessness across Western North Carolina during the pandemic. There was an increasing need for services for people experiencing homelessness across the region at this time. And Asheville is the largest city in the area and has one of the few shelters for people experiencing homelessness. And, you know, this has continued to be a really important issue in the region and definitely something that we are talking about a lot right now in 2023. I asked David Forbes about the Blade's ability to keep covering issues like homelessness in Asheville. How is the Asheville Blade positioned? Obviously, y'all are continuing to do the work you've been doing the last seven years, what's the, what's the outlook for the near and, and longer term future? 
in the course of 2020, we became a co-op because that's, you know, I think the most sustainable way for journalism to go forward. And I think, honestly, newsrooms work better when there aren't bosses and hierarchies. I think that's a really negative way for them to function. And a lot of us who've worked in media have seen how much, like, that's kind of kind of ruined things. Certainly, like, <laughs> we certainly welcome more community support, obviously. But at the same time, we've held strong and will continue to do so. And this, I think this is a story that happens kind of throughout Appalachia when communities are facing extractive industry. You know, it's historically been timber and coal, but Asheville's a great example of how tourism is really kind of a major extractive industry in this region too, which is that, you know, if governments and businesses just view this as a place, you know, make money and sell for parts, basically, there are communities here who support each other for a very, very long time and have fought for a very long time, and they're going to keep doing so. And I think viewed in that context, we feel like we're on pretty strong ground. That was David Forbes of the Asheville Blade. Both of the Blade reporters who were arrested on Christmas Day were charged with trespassing. In April, a judge found the two reporters guilty of second-degree trespassing. They've appealed to a jury trial in North Carolina Superior Court. Inside Appalachia reached out to the Asheville Police Department for comment. Since the trial is still ongoing, a spokesperson said it would not be appropriate for APD to make a statement. Coming up, journalists typically report on communities. But what happens when they report with them? We'll talk with the publisher of Scalawag about the practice of sharing a byline with the people who are closest to the story. That is really powerful and creates agency in a way that journalism generally does not. Anyone can practice journalism. It's not something that is only for journalists, for reporters. That's after the break. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Lily Knapp. You're inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Welcome back Inside Appalachia. I'm Lily Knepp. And I'm Mason Adams. Before the break, we spoke with Appalachian journalists about challenges they face as they try to continue reporting. Those include declining advertising and corporate cuts, but also conflict with the agencies and governments they cover. That's not to say there aren't some good things happening in local journalism. There are some outlets in the region doing really cool and innovative work. That's something I wanted to ask you about, Lily. What are some journalism initiatives you're seeing that are doing interesting things in terms of trying to cover news in better ways to serve the public? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about what are the best ways to share news as a journalist. But then there's also this larger conversation about how journalists are working with their communities. Yeah, I'm aware of some media organizations that are training community journalists and centering community stories. I'm thinking of Black Bag Odd in West Virginia and also Southerly, which worked with and for communities until it closed on May 1st. Scalawag is another organization. Part of their mission is to disrupt the narrative of the South, um, and they've done a couple of really interesting projects using new journalism methods. I'm familiar with Scalawag. It covers the South, but a lot of times that also includes Appalachia. Yeah, publisher Sierra Hinton has written about her opinion on the needs for changes in journalism for a long time. 
specifically how to make sure that the social justice values of Scalawag are present in every aspect of their work. I spoke to Hinton recently, and she started by defining what movement journalism is. She credits that definition to Project South, which is based in Atlanta. The sort of high-level definition of movement journalism that came out of that work was journalism that's done in service of justice and liberation. That definition is, I think, really helpful for thinking about uh, the values that the work is rooted in. It is not as descriptive for the practice it, itself, but, you know, I think for us at Scalawag, our work is really about how we are rooting our reporting in community. And so in the same way that folks are doing other types of grassroots work, um, other types of work in community to affect change, we are doing the same thing with journalism and storytelling as the tool. Could you situate a little bit movement journalism within the current conversations about journalism? How do you think about that change in journalism? To me, movement journalism makes complete or gets us closer to a theory of change for journalism and also closer to what journalism says. And by journal, I mean like the big J journalism. Um, what it says that it wants to do. What I mean by that is, you know, things like holding power to account, you know, being a voice for the people, being a watchdog for the people. You know, I think that it's actually really hard to do those things when a tenet of your work is objectivity, because when you are doing work on behalf of people or doing work to hold power accountable, you are stating that you are choosing, I don't want to say a side because I think sideism um, has done a lot to harm journalism, but you are making a choice and you are stating a, a position, right? But when you're trying to do that at the same time that you're trying to remain neutral, it doesn't really work out. And I think that that is what we have seen a lot and where the real erosion of trust has happened in journalism. Um, and so circling back, I think that movement journalism actually works to repair some of that harm. For a lot of folks, when they say objectivity, that our journalism is objective, what they're really trying to say is that we're not going to be influenced by outside power. And there is a way to do that without harming communities. So this, this show is Inside Appalachia. You're very clear in your work that Galloway is for the South. How do you think specifically about what this region needs? I wholeheartedly and firmly believe that, like much of the history of this nation, that the South is the birthplace of transformational change. And therefore, we need media that is aligned with that change. You know, when I was in Atlanta, we went on a civil rights tour and we learned about how the Black radio station was in the same building as the 
I think SELC headquarters and where Dr. King's office was and how when they had announcements from the movement, they would literally take a broom and like tap the ceiling of their office to get the attention of the radio station. And I think that sort of alignment doesn't really exist anymore in that anecdote. It's easy to say, okay, well, you know, they were just a mouthpiece of movement. Um, I don't think that is what was happening. And that's definitely not what we are trying to do. We're showing up because like, this is the work that we believe in too. And we believe in it for our communities, for our home and for the South. We think that it is in perfect alignment with not only what the region needs, but like what the region is and what happens here. So how do you create a media system in the South that allows for the South to be the South? And I think that that media system must be aligned to movement rooted in, in, in grassroots. So we've talked a lot about theory and behind this, but I want to get into the practice. At Galloway, y'all have done a number of projects and stories to try and move away from some more extractive journalism techniques. Could you speak a little bit to some of the projects y'all are working on right now? The things that come to mind immediately for me are co-reporting that we did toward the end of last year. We had a reporter who was working with some Black farmers in Mississippi. And originally, the reporter's plan was to actually, you know, just report the story themselves. And our Race to Place editor at the time, Co Bragg, really challenged them to say, like, hey, what would it look like for you to actually work with the folks who you are reporting about and actually report with them um, and to share this byline. I think that that is really powerful and creates agency in a way that journalism generally does not. And it also challenges some of the norms we see around like who is a reporter and who isn't a reporter. And it calls back to what I was saying earlier around journalism as a practice and understanding that anyone can practice journalism. Um, It's not something that is only for journalists, for reporters. Uh, The other thing that comes to mind is our work with incarcerated writers. There are a number of organizations that publish work by formerly incarcerated folks. There are even fewer that uh, published work by folks who are currently on the inside. And that's work that we've been doing since 2016 and we've um, expanded. And just really, again, about folks having agency and being able to tell their own stories and also being paid for that. And so in addition to actually publishing incarcerated writers, um, we did a training and published a digital and print guidebook called The Press and Prisons. It's a training and resource for other newsrooms for journalists to help them understand what it looks like to work with someone who is incarcerated to publish their work. Our sincere hope is that more news organizations, more journalists will do this work so that we can hear more about what is happening for folks who are currently incarcerated. So those are really non-traditional projects that you're working on. In the rest of your career, you do a lot of thinking about funding sources and how the editorial and the business side of journalism 
should work together, could work together. Can you speak to the way that you think about that in relation to all of these grassroots community-led projects? In my work as a coaching consultant with Blue Engine, we are facing some real challenges, obviously, when it comes to how we sustain a news business, especially on a community level, especially if you are a news organization that is not founded by uh, someone who has access to a great amount of wealth. I think that's something that we don't really talk enough about in, in journalism is that a lot of your legacy publications are organizations that were family businesses. Now, some of them are very large family businesses with lots of money, but they're family businesses, right? And that really limited who could be leading a news organization. In my work, thinking about how news organizations can look to community for support. Obviously, it can't be the only revenue source and the only revenue stream, and it is a revenue source that can take a while to build up. But a prerequisite to being able to do that work well is building trust and building relationships. And, you know, then that goes back to talking about the harm that the industry has done and that really keeps us from being able to build relationships with the whole of our communities, with people who have historically been um, overlooked or forgotten by media. So how do we change the practice of media to acknowledge and account for that harm so that we can start to build that trust, deepen those relationships, and also look to our community to support the work that we're doing because they understand the value of it um, and they know who is publishing it, what our values are, what we stand for, and they feel as invested in us as we do in them. What kind of advice do you have for folks in the media industry as you think about the way that journalism is changing and maybe needs to change? A lot of folks continue to be dependent on dwindling revenue streams like advertising as products changed, right? So when print was the product, advertising made more sense when there wasn't a digital alternative that could reach more people. And we just didn't make that transition fast enough. So a lot of folks are sort of staring down the barrel of if we don't see something change soon, can we survive? And a lot of organizations have not. And I think what's tough is repairing harm, building trust, building relationships, especially for organizations that have been in existence, have been a part of the community. And, you know, there's documented harm for them. Like you can look at their archives and see where they have done clear harm. That's not necessarily a fast process. And you have to start somewhere And the longer that you delay that work, the harder it will be. I feel like we've dug into a lot of really honestly deep questions. As you look at the changing world of journalism, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, that's a really great question. I am looking forward to and very encouraged by the number of folks that I do see stepping up to do the work, who are coming to terms with the reality 
that I was talking about earlier and, and just saying that like, hey, we really do want to change the way that we are operating because we understand that we have not been serving the whole of our community and being really honest about who has been left out. Uh, I think the other thing that I'm excited about is the work that is um, beginning to be done around a more intentional work at the intersections of movement and media and what does it look like for movement and community organizations to work with media organizations? Where is their alignment? Where is their opportunities uh, for us to better serve and support our communities? And I think that just also points to greater collaboration, networking, and ecosystem building in general. And I think that that is exactly what we need to be able to actually sustain our news information systems. That was Sierra Hinton, publisher at Scalawag. Well, Lily, we've talked today about some of what's happening in Appalachian media, and these are just snapshots, not anywhere close to a comprehensive look. What are your hopes for local journalism in Appalachia? One of the major themes that I really hear from a lot of local journalists and media organizations is collaboration. You know, talking about how outlets and journalists can share resources and work together to tell stories for their community and get folks information. And, you know, it's really encouraging to hear that people want to work together to make the journalism in this region better. And that's, you know, here in Western North Carolina and across the state and Appalachia in the South. Jesse James Carter is mean when he's angry. Today we've talked a lot about journalists, how their work's funded, and how they do reporting. But let's get back to the most important part of this, the people and the communities they cover. Lily, you recently covered a story about a pivotal moment for the town of Canton, North Carolina. Yeah, one of the biggest stories in Western North Carolina right now is the closure of the paper mill in Canton. About a thousand people are losing their jobs. The mill's final whistle blew on May 24th, and I was there. At noon today, a whistle rang out over the town of Canton, as it has daily for decades. But today's sound was more like a death knell for the Pactive Evergreen Paper Mill, which is scheduled to close entirely in early June. For Canton resident Sharon Roberts, the sound marks the end of an era. My dad, my brother, my husband have all retired from here, and it's just really sad that, that our little town is losing this. I'm 76 years old, and I've been hearing that whistle for 76 years. Roberts joined more than 100 Canton residents and neighbors who gathered across the street from the mill to listen to the final whistle. Canton Mayor Zeb Smathers described the closure as a death. This is a funeral. It feels like a funeral. It feels that I'm getting ready to go into a place to say goodbye, and I think it's exactly what we're getting ready to do. It is truly emotional. Former employees like Zachary Schoff reflected on the importance of the mill to the financial security of many in the town. I spent 42 years over there. You're lucky if you got a job here. There's no, there no industry around here that pays what they did. Schoff says while workers may find other jobs, the work and pay for those losing their jobs won't stack up. A lot of them places, Nashville's a hiring. 
But the thing about it is, you're the top man over here. You've been here 30 some years, and then you go to the bottom of our own graveyard, start all over, and that's devastating to you to do that. As workers search for new opportunities, residents like Jessica Kears took a moment today to express their pain. You cannot live in this community and hear that whistle and know that it's the last time and not have some emotions on it. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Lily, that's a powerful story. I know that paper mill is the economic lifeblood of Canton and has been for decades. Yeah, the mayor of Canton has called this a funeral. The closure is going to change the fabric of Canton and Haywood County. It's emotional for the community, and it was important to be there to witness this. Lily, let's head to western Pennsylvania now. A high school class in Beaver County recently became aware of multiple ways toxic air pollution is affecting their community by paying attention to the local news. Here's the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier with that story. Allison Benedum teaches English and Earth Science at Rochester Area High School. Student body, 200. One assignment she gives every year is to follow current events related to the environment. It just so happened this year's assignment coincided with the East Palestine derailment, which happened just 15 miles from the high school. The black plume created by burning chemicals worried many of her students and their families. And they were asking, like, my mom's really worried. Um, What should I go home and tell her? You're my science teacher. Can you help me? And once I heard that, I basically threw out that week's plans. She directed her students to study the impact of the derailment and pollution from the Shell ethane cracker about four miles away. Pepper Siemens is a sophomore in the class. We went over um, the air quality, like is the air safe for us? Is it safe to breathe? So we went over like important days, like once a month or like important days within that month and checked the air quality. It was overall well but we're still really worried about it. The students made audio recordings of their final reports. In Siemens' report, she found the shell plant, which makes plastic out of natural gas, produced a number of harmful chemicals. With all these toxins, there are health issues coming with it. The VOC and nitrogen oxides create smog and ground level ozone. The effects from all of the pollution is brain damage, lung disease like asthma and emphysema. Reese Reardon, an 11th grader, was surprised when she compared Pennsylvania's air quality to Ohio's in the weeks after the derailment. We actually found Pennsylvania's air quality was worse. The most striking thing she learned was how companies like Shell break air quality rules. In September 2022, the plant released 512 tons of volatile organic compounds, almost as much as its entire year-long allotment of 516 tons. The plant recently agreed to a fine of $10 million for its air quality violations. And then we found out, like, you know, they're breaking their little rules set in place that don't release too much, and they're breaking it, and so we focus on what they're doing. Eric Alberts, a graduating senior, said he didn't think much of the derailment until he saw a report that 4,000 fish had died because of chemicals released into local streams. Yeah, I was really scared about that one. That was when I was like, oh, wait a minute. Stuff is actually serious. He found the response from government officials confusing. At first, they justified the intentional burning of five rail cars worth of vinyl chloride and afterwards declared the area safe. When the fish died, I was like, wow, is this like 
really like propaganda kind of going on, telling us everything's okay when it's actually not. Banadam says one of the purposes of the exercise was to teach her students how to sift through sources on environmental topics in the social media era. Because a lot of where they're getting their information is TikTok, is Instagram, is their parents through Facebook. And it's not always the most researched or the most even keeled. A lot of it can be inflammatory and they come in very panicked about things. Benedum says she hopes her students take away the fact that they can look for real information on their own and develop their own opinions. She's working with a nonprofit to try and get some air quality monitors set up at the school so the students can create their own air quality data. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Reed Frazier. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. We talked some today about how media outlets are elevating new voices in Appalachia. And Mason, you did an interview a while back about a way people have been doing that for decades. Yeah, zines. The advent of copy machines allowed individuals to make their own personal magazines. Zines thrived in the 80s and 90s, but they're still being made today. Elliot Stewart has been making zines since he was 13. His current ongoing zine, Porch Beers, takes an incisive look at Appalachian culture through the eyes of a queer trans man. Porch Beers dives into pop culture fandom, West Virginia food, and his complicated relationship with his hometown of Huntington, West Virginia. This past winter, I spoke with Elliot Stewart about the zine and asked what a porch beer is anyway. So I first found Porch Beers kind of randomly online using a different search engine than I tried before. And I ordered a couple copies on Etsy and was just blown away. Um, I've, I've read zines for a long time, and I've read Appalachian zines. And these just grabbed my attention as a reader. They hooked my interest. The writing is fun and short and funny, but also serious and thoughtful. And the stuff you write about is all stuff that I'm interested in. Or if I'm not immediately interested, the way you write about it like, is like a fish hook that grabs my interest. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is this person that makes porch beers? I guess kind of born and bred West Virginian, um, moved a lot around a lot as a kid. Um, we lived with my grandparents who were ministers and uh, moved a about every three to four years uh, to different parts of the state. So um, I feel like that wanderlust has always kind of been in me. And uh, one of my ways getting it out and recording memories is uh, just writing. You know, that's always uh, my grandma has little booklets I've made when I was like five or six that were kind of maybe my first zines. And it's a good way to be kind of front and center about like a lot of like intersecting identities that I have um, that I feel a lot of people come up to me and say that I'm like the first person from like X group that they've ever met. And I don't know, that's kind of cool. It has a lot of responsibility to it, but it's kind of cool. And everybody that comes in my house, um, when they see these zines, they always wonder about the name. Tell us about the name porch beers. Sure. That was, uh, 
a tradition in Huntington and maybe I'm sure elsewhere too, like where you have a porch. Um, but Huntington is a small knit community to where everybody knows everybody pretty much. And, you know, you can go by somebody's house there on their porch. Hey, do you want a porch beer? Yeah. So you sit down, you have a talk, uh, could be about nothing, could be about like very important heart to heart stuff. Uh, but that's just kind of like a hallmark of Huntington summers. And I wanted, uh, what I did to reflect that. Yeah. And the, the first issue is about fandom and you have a few different essays about different arenas of fandom per se. Um, and then the second issue on West Virginia, I found myself taking um, shots of some of the writing about food and sending it to Inside Appalachia's resident foodie, Zach Harold. And he was immediately like, where can I get this? Issue three was about music. And then you came back to food in issues four and 4.5. What pulled you back to food after you had already written about the different kind of foods um unique to West Virginia. What what pulled you back for two more issues? When I go to make an issue of Porch Beers, sometimes I will set out and it will be I want X theme and write around that theme. But more often than not, it's just kind of I write a couple of articles as to what I feel and a theme loosely takes shape. Um, and that's kind of what was happening with this one. To the point where, uh, you know, I had a couple of other like runner up uh, themes that I was going with. And my partner was like, you you might as well write about food because that seems like where this one is drawing you to. And I was, yeah, he's right. You know, the, that was what was on my mind. I don't know if there was any particular reason for it, but uh, that's just uh, where the writing led me. So I read through these five issues they're on specific topics, whether it's pro wrestling or the Ben Folds Five or West Virginia food. But there's there's a larger story arc here, too. I mean, you can I, I can read growth in these zines. Um, you move from Huntington to Chattanooga and back. When you read back these zines, what is the story of Porch Spears to you so far? I do go back and read them at times. And sometimes I do kind of it is a little painful to read some of the early stuff just because I have changed so much as a person, but I'm glad I have a record of it, that it, these things happened. And honestly, you know, it's, I think valuable to get stories of growth out there because not a lot of people record kind of the minutia of life in Appalachia or in like the various kind of sub communities I'm in. Porch Beers tracks this geographic shift, but it also documents sort of a different kind of transition. Can you share a little bit more about that? I am an out transgender man. Um, I have been out since, in in one form or another, um, as trans since about like 2018. And just slowly began uh, socially transitioning and then medically transitioning. Um, also uh, considered myself queer. Um, as uh, my my orientation, it's it's been an interesting experience with that. Um, you know, a lot of learning curve. Sometimes people, when they find out, will have like. I like to assume that most people are in good faith when they ask questions, but sometimes they can be very awkward or a little hurtful. 
but I try to take it in stride, you know, like like specific medical questions or things like, you know, and if I don't feel comfortable, I'm at least to the point now where I'm like, hey, that's kind of a weird thing to be asking me, yo. <laughs> a lot of times I'm the first trans person that someone has knowingly met. Uh, and that is wild to me sometimes. Well, Elliot Stewart, your writing resonates deeply with me, and I can't wait to see what you write next. Thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Huntington writer Elliot Stewart, author of the zine Porch Beers. We'll link Stewart's Instagram at porchbeerzine on our website, wvpublic.org. Lily Knepp, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate what you're doing for local journalism. Thanks for having me, Mason. Why don't you take us out? Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jesse Milnes, Appalachian Roadshow, Paul Lomas, and Chris Knight. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. My co-host today was Lily Kinnett from Blue Ridge Public Radio. You can find Inside Appalachia on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.